everyone, and welcome to another Scott Swahey podcast. And today I am joined by Carla J. Easton. Hello, Carla. Hello, how are you? I'm well. I'm very well, thanks. And today uh, you're on to talk mainly about, since yesterday, unsung pioneers of Scottish pop. So for those who don't know, what can you tell us about that? So it's a documentary I've been making with friends for about five years now, and it's sort of like charting the history of all girl bands in Scotland. So telling the stories of a lot of bands, uh, letting people hear their music, just to create a nice sort of like historical context of women making music in Scotland to benefit future generations. So what was the, the kind of initial spark? You know, you said you've been thinking about it for a long time or it's been working on it for a while, long time. What was the thing which thought, yeah, this is a story that needs to be told? Um, I mean, it, it all sprung up from me just being a, an avid record collector, you know. And um, I used to DJ with my friend Jenna years ago and we'd play vinyl and, and share stuff with each other. And I really got into uh, girl groups, like predominantly American girl groups from the, the early 60s. And I always remember Jenna turning up being at a party we were DJing at, being like, you are going to love this and whipped out a seven inch of Since Yesterday by Strawberry Switchblade. And I just couldn't believe what was coming out of the stereo. Um, especially at the time I was living in Edinburgh. So for something that obviously referenced the records that I loved so much from America in the 70s to be more recent, but also local and just down the MA, it was, it was brilliant because I'd started playing in bands by that point. So it was like, wow, I can identify with this. Um, and that led to a love, well, just an obsession with trying to find more. You think if there's one, there's got to be others. And, um, you know, just searching through fan forums and blogs and eventually discovering the twin sets and the ets and the little fragments of information I could read about them wouldn't lead to the music I couldn't get access to the music and that really frustrated me so you kind of put it to the side and then over the years find more bands more girl bands from Scotland and um, skip forward to like 2016 I was working on a teen canteen video with Blair Young who was directing it and the conversations just sort of turned to how girl bands are represented in music videos and then a general discussion on I think Blair made the comment of there's not been that many old girl bands in Scotland. And I was like, this is my moment, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> hold my pint till I tell you everything I know. And I just said, oh, I've always thought someone should make a documentary on it. And I didn't envision it would be me doing it. And that was it, really. It just kind of went from there. <laughs> so did Blair kind of encourage you and say, well, it sounds like if anyone's going to do it, it is going to be you. I mean, what was... You know, it's a big thing from going, somebody should make this, to going, I'm going to make this. That's a, quite a jump. I think it's always been that thing. Like, I came up through art school and I sort of, my practice was kind of video art and video installation, but that would be kind of like a three-minute thing at most. You know, most of my stuff was quite short and on loops and installation. And I think I've got a very DIY attitude and Blair certainly worked his way up in, in music video and production DIY, you know, we founded Forest of Black in the 90s and stuff. So I think together I thought we could do it, but on my own, I was like, 
I wouldn't know where to start. I've no sort of experience in something of, of, of that scale. And um, But also Blair, like me, is a massive uh, record collector. We've constantly made playlists or CDs for each other throughout our friendship. And so it felt like, all right, this is this is a cool thing for us to do. And But that step from saying, how do you make, what is the first step? If someone was thinking of making their own music documentary, what is the first kind of step that you do? Um, give I, up your social life. <laughs> <laughs> give up your social life. No. Friends and family, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you've got to, I think you've got to be really passionate. Um, immediately it was like, right, okay, let's compile a list of the bands and start tracking down the members and see where they are and see if we can contact them. So you know, reaching out to a few people we might know or, again, back trawling through blogs, looking for comments, any kind of clues. Like, you really are starting the treasure hunt straight from the off. But, I mean, we didn't even think about how are we going to make this, how much is it going to cost or anything. I think it was, like, within a week we'd tracked down Jeanette from the McKinley's and we're at her house in Dunbar interviewing her. We, we, just, kind of, we just kind of went for it, really. So a good time now, because uh, you mentioned the McKinley's and a few other bands, to talk about the bands who are going to feature, because the reason this documentary is being made is because they aren't better known. So uh, give us some background into a few. The McKinley's sound fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, so we start back like ground zero are the McKinley's, um, and they were active in the very early 60s, two singing sisters from Edinburgh, Jeanette and uh, Sheila Sadly, Sheila's passed away now. A um, couple of singles on Columbia, Parlophone were really interested. They toured with the Beatles on their first UK tour, uh, opened for the Stones at Wembley. I think at one point they had a range of fashion designs being made specifically for the McKinley Girl. Um, just really, really great. Um, so that's sort of like our ground zero. And then there's a bit of a gap. And as far as we can work out, the next old girl band is the Etts, who also came from Edinburgh, and they were sort of like late 78, 79. They seem to be the first example of women going the next stage and picking up instruments and playing rather than relying on session musicians. But it was very of the time, very punk, very DIY. Um, so they did maybe like 10 gigs uh, very much operated around like the time of the Scars, the Fire Engines, the Water Boys. And then after 79, it really kicks off into that post-punk era um, where we see, well, basically a lot of mass unemployment, but also a government where it was very easy to get benefits so you could afford to be creative. So that's where it really kind of kicks off. So we've got in Glasgow, Sophisticated Boom Boom, Strawberry Switchblade, uh, the Rutkowski sisters start coming through, where Sunset Gun and Louise was in this mortal coil. Uh, in Edinburgh, we get another set of sisters coming through called the Twin Sets. Um, there's loads of bands. <laughs> Excuse me if I miss some. So there's this really exciting period and his latest flame come through as well. And then we go to the 90s where, again, it's that American thing coming through and influencing. So Riot Girl and the birth here of Lung Leg, Pink Cross. Um, and then we've sort of finished turn of the millennium, like 2000 to 2010, and look at the Hedrons just before social media really took off. 
and it became much easier to get your music out yourself without yeah. sort of the backing of a label. What's really interesting is that it, it seems that every kind of wave, if you like, of the people you've mentioned were in, influenced by music coming from outside Scotland rather than their own. You know, it, what you seem to be doing is, is painting a kind of linear look. This is a linear line through everyone. But actually, they were kind of getting their music from overseas, which suggests that, again, they didn't know about each other. It was almost like they were, yeah. they were starting their own ground zero. Oh, this has never happened before, so we'll go and do it. I know, and that, that's what's been quite fascinating, and that was a real sort of motive for me to do the documentary, you know, coming out and coming up through the music scene in an old girl band and then noticing other bands come out, like Skinny Dipper, Honey Blood, Bratticus, Sacred Paws, and you were like, okay, there's this little boom of it happening again, but I always knew that it had happened in previous decades, so you kind of, you wonder and question, would there be gaps or would it be, would we not use the term girl band? Would we use just the term band if there was this traceable history and you did know about each yeah. other and you didn't think, you know, I remember when Teen Canteen started out, it was like, what's it like to be in an old girl band and you turn up at venues and folk be like, where's the band? And you're like, We're right here. And you know, like like you'd fallen in from outer space and you were this new concept and, and and we're not. So I'm sort of like, okay, well, in order to progress in the future, let's let's document the past before it's lost and make that more available to people. I mean, that's often the problem, I think, with the way that history is told, that if you've never seen what went before, if you don't know if certain stories aren't told, then you do think that, Oh, I might be the first people to do that. And as a result of that, a lot of people just don't because they mm. think, well, this has never happened before. So uh, there must be an idea that by telling this story, you hope to kind of not just join the story together, but also let people know that this this is there is a good history of this. Massively, and like you know, a huge thing for me was making it just because I'm, I'm I'm a music fan. I keep saying that, and I wanted to get the stories, and I wanted to get the music and stuff. But you, you end up looking at um, the social issues and the cultural issues that come with all girl bands, and you can't not discuss those things. You know, like how hard it is the sexism you would face, whether that's like you get fired for being pregnant, comments, how you're told to dress, how you're told to behave. Um, so you, you have to kind of talk about these things too. But ultimately, I wanted to make a documentary that I would have liked to have seen when I was 15. Yeah. Because when I was 15, growing up in a small town, it was acceptable for me to be in the audience. But when I tried to be in a band or start a band that was that was not acceptable and you know I went to high school with Debbie from Teen Canteen we've known each other since we were 11 she's my best friend but it wasn't till I was 29 I said do you want to be in a band together and I just feel like if we normalize collectives of collectives of women picking up and playing together then that's good because in the pop world the pop pop vocal group world that's okay. It's okay for collectors of women to get together, sing, perform pop songs. They have long careers. They sell out stadiums like Destiny's Child, TLC, The Supremes, Spice Girls, you know. But when it comes to actually a collective of women who are playing their own music and writing their own music, we've not 
we'd, we, we've not got that level yet. We had a hint of it with the bangles. Yeah. But it's not been, you know, where's the female equivalent of the Beatles? Where's the female equivalent of Coldplay? You know? Yeah, it's that idea that there were certain things, as soon as a, a woman picked up a guitar, it was going to put that back down. There were set, you know, there was uh, certain roles which were allowed. And do you think that still pervades today? Is there still that feeling? There seems to be an issue with, with girl bands because, you know, we've got like PJ Harvey and Chrissy Hind and, mm. and Stevie Nicks and all that. But for some reason, there seems to be a stumbling block somewhere within the industry when it's four or five girls. And I don't understand it and I don't have the answers, but I think these are good questions to be asking. And again, going back to this idea that if people know that this has happened before, perhaps in the long run it wouldn't matter, just people go, well, I'm allowed to do this because it's happened before. Yeah, I think so. And I think what's been interesting is everyone that I've interviewed so far, I mean, we're still very much in a, a working, we're still not finished the documentary, so there's still more interviews to do. But so far, and peers today in the scene I'm in, we all just started bands. Yeah. You know, and then people start calling us ghetto yeah. bands. And yeah. I'm not, uh, the irony is not lost on me that I have to use, we all have to use this term someone else has given us to now be able to tell these stories. Like, it's a bit of a paradox, to be honest. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So you've, you've recorded quite a few um, interviews um, already. As that must have been fascinating to actually go and speak to these people themselves and see what it was like for them. Was that kind of eye-opening for you? Yeah, it's gold to me, you know, like to get first-hand accounts of um, particularly the scenes that they were coming up in. I mean, I'm obsessed with kind of popular and social culture and, you know, what was it like? What was that club like? What was that rehearsal room like? And, you know, like it's actually quite nice as a musician interviewing other musicians because you can talk about like, you know, what it's like when you have to like sound check and you hate the sound of a, a drum snare or, you know, being in these dingy rehearsal rooms where you're like right up to an amp with no earplugs in or, you know, being on small tour vans and there's five of you in one bed to cut down tour costs. Like it's all, it's all really great to, to hear all them and exciting. And even now, like, cause well, my band's not active at the moment, so it's nice to sort of collectively reminisce on those things as well. But I think um, the one thing that's been quite apparent is that whoever we've spoken to so far, certainly the local scene around them has been supportive and has been nurturing. So it just seems to be when it's like there's some sort of link missing of when it goes to the next phase from grassroots and you mentioned um, that most of the bands that you're talking about are kind of pre-social media. Um, do you think that has promoted a change in the kind of support you're talking about? Do you think it's easier to meet um, like-minded people kind of in that way? I hope so. I think social media is also hard and, and, a, and a bit of a pressure, um, but certainly you can have safe spaces within it and communities. Um, there's um, as my 
I'm on, there's a Facebook group at, at the moment called Pop Girls, which has been set up by some younger singer-songwriters coming through the scene right now. And it's it's really wonderful to see how they all support each other and help each other and communicate to each other. And it's a safe space to ask questions if you don't know something, which is certainly not something that I had when I started out in my first band um, it was more your offline community and try to like, you know, I'm going to book a venue and draw a flyer and my friends got a band so they can support and we'll just put it on. Um, so I think, it, I think it can work and I think that's good for that. So the, um, you started a Kickstarter to help fund the film, which seems to have gone spectacularly well. Yeah. <laughs> when we first spoke about um, having a chat it was before it had started. And we went, oh, maybe in a couple of days, you see how it goes. And it went right through your initial thing within about 24 hours, I think. Uh, I know. It was, um, it was unbelievable. It's it's really overwhelming. It's, it's great for the team making the doc, but it's, I think it's really great for the bands as well to see yeah. that there's an audience. It demonstrates there's an audience wanting to hear these stories and these songs. And that's quite a, a powerful thing, using a platform such as crowdfunding, I guess. You know, you have an idea and you make it and you don't know if other people are going to be into it or not as well. But now the Kickstarter, we set an initial target of 10K and I think it was like, it was maybe like 36 hours or something, we'd surpassed it. So... We're in the position now where we're almost at our first stretch target, which is great. And I guess it's really important to say the Kickstarters for um, funding to use Archive, which is so expensive, so expensive. It's solely for Archive, the Kickstarter. It wouldn't fund the entire documentary, sadly. Um, But we're almost at 20K. And if we could get to... I think if we could get to 25k in our stretch targets, that would be great because it would allow us more access to use the archive in the documentary, which frames it nicely in its historical context. Um, But also get an archive producer on board to help go through it all because there's a lot to catalogue and people are coming forward like, oh, I've got this demo tape from here and I filmed that gig there and I took these photos at this flat party that that band played at then and it's brilliant. But you're just like, wow, there's so much stuff out there that people are now realising the cultural value of it. That must be so satisfying for, for not just for yourself but for the bands as well as you say because it says that the interest was always there I mean I don't know if you thought at the beginning are we going to get enough footage to make a feature length documentary and now from what you're saying you could have a director's cut with you know three hours no, yeah. <laughs> do you know it's it's just that we were like there is some archive like moving image archive that either doesn't exist just because of the era, you know, like we're lucky now that anytime I go out, I've got a video camera in the palm of my hand and my phone. In the late 70s, you didn't have a video camera when you went to a gig. Um, so there's like lost archive or archive that doesn't exist, but that actually puts us in a really good position to create new content or new archive where I think it's really important making a music documentary that you hear the music. You yeah. know, you don't want to just hear... 30 seconds that's in the background while someone's talking about it. There's nothing worse than finishing a documentary and then being like, right, where can I go and hear the stuff, you know? 
Um, so we'd quite like to bring on maybe some animation and just also really help bring the scene alive and the energy of of when it was being made. That's exactly what I was thinking. I didn't realise that. I didn't want to give away any secrets, but you're looking to maybe create your own mini videos or, or, or for the tracks that there isn't footage. Yeah, and we thought animation would be quite nice conceptually, like as well as being accessible and, and, and producing like a really beautiful film. It's also like, if you think about the animated world, all girl bands rule. You know, they, they go to outer space and play world peace concerts. They travel in time. They're like almost superheroes like Josie and the Pussycats or Gem and the Holograms or Barbie and the Rockstars. And so it's it's quite a nice conceptual way to do it. Like, well, if it exists in the dream world, why is it not existing in the real world yet? And, you know, talking about how expensive it is for archive footage, I presume that is the big companies that are charging a lot like BBC or Channel 4 or whoever, rather than someone who's got it on their... Yeah, no, we've found that a lot of, like, fans or people who are around at the time the bands were active have just been so forthcoming with their personal archive. And same with the bands, like, um, which has been just really wonderful. Um, But, yeah, to contextualise it, like, for theatre and broadcast release... Say we wanted to use a minute of Strawberry Switchblade performing on top of the pops, that would cost us three grand. A minute, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and to be honest, I'm used to making stuff with like zero money or very little money, but um, I'm like, wow, documentaries are expensive. That's very much so, yeah. So would... And you maybe can't answer this yet, but would there be a soundtrack album or is that a different thing altogether? Oh, I'd love it. I think it'd be great. It's a, definitely a, a vinyl I want in my collection. It would be a great compilation. Um, you know, it's. I'd, I'd love to see... I'd love to... It's just... That's the best thing about it, right, is you hear about these bands, you chat them down, you hear the stories, and then I've been lucky to hear the music via that process, and the music's as good as you think it's going to be. I keep saying to people it's like the best record collection you're waiting to get access to, and there's so many like little demos or peel sessions or recorded stuff that never saw the light of day, and um, so it's really... It's really um, you, you want it to, to get out there. I want it to be there for people to find and listen to, you know? It sounds to me like this is almost the ultimate version of the mixtape that you pass on to your pals and say, oh, you really want to listen to this. This is amazing. Except, you know, it's the ultimate. I know. Version. Well, that's the thing. Like, see, for our Kickstarter, really, really kindly, uh, the ets were like, right, well, why don't we we'll make um, cassette tapes of our four-track demo, which is the only thing they ever recorded, and they did it in one of their parents' front rooms. Uh, I think you can hear a dog at one point. But um, they were like, oh, we'll digitise it and put it on cassettes, but we're doing it the punk way. It's one side only. And I was like, that's cool. We'll help you get that process <laughs> ready. And then 
was like, right, we'll just we'll put we'll make twenty, we'll put twenty up and stuff. And I was like, cool, they've gone completely, and they were like, no way, that's so exciting. And you know, I'd been chatting to Nicola Meehan on uh, BBC Radio Scotland for a program she was doing on women making music and talking about the doc. And so Nicola played a bit of the X, and they're like, oh my god, we're on the radio! <laughs> like, it's just it's it's so good to see her like. Twin sets um, have been featured in a few press and stuff, and one of their tracks got played on the radio recently. Like, this is great, and I'm like, I know it is, and the, but the songs are so good. And so, it might be a good idea to talk about some of the other rewards that uh, you, you were offering on the Kickstarter because there were some great one-off things. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're on the hunt for more one-off stuff, <laughs> uh, to, to be honest. But um, no, we've, we've just tried our best to make it an affordable project uh, project that you could back and get involved in because we're relying on an audience and music fans. So, you know, you could donate a pound to this project if that's all you can afford that's totally cool because every pound adds up. Um, but yeah, we'd say a recommended donation of, of £10 um, and then the rewards start about 2025. So we've got a exclusive poster, film poster, that'll just be for the Kickstarter, um, being designed by Jen Davies, who's based in Glasgow. She's a brilliant designer, she's done some great uh, work for like Glasgow Film Festival and stuff. And then we've got uh, band T-shirts, where it just lists all the bands, that's pretty cool. Um, private screening, so we hope to have a rough cut screening in December. It doesn't mean it's the finished thing, it'll just be like, we're going to view this as a team. The bands are all invited to see it for the first time, but you get to be there. <laughs> so you could turn up and twin sets are like, Carla, this film's horrible, re-edit. Um, I don't know if it will be that, but and just a nice Q&A. Um, you can get a shout out in the credits, get your name in the credits, or maybe you want to dedicate it to someone and we'll thank them. Um and then for the sort of like bigger kind of rewards, they're more aimed at, I guess, if anyone wants to invest in helping the film. So like logo sponsorships or executive producer for any philanthropists out there. Um, and then we have to, we've put a golden ticket up, which is basically join the team and be part of the creative process, um, which is quite pricey and no one's taken us up on it yet, but that's fine. You probably see how tired I am and are just like, I don't want to be involved. <laughs> well, you being you, this isn't enough. You started a new musical project as well and at the same time. Can we talk a little bit about poster paints as well? Uh, yes, that is uh, last, uh, started in maybe April, first lockdown, 2020. Um, my friend Simon, who... Uh, it was he was the guitarist in Fright and Rabbit and he'd started playing live with me before the world ended. And um he was like, Oh, I've got this song for a short film. Can you just do some ooze and as on it? But due to lockdown, I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> and so instead wrote an entire song to him with lyrics and melodies and sent it and um he just liked it. So we just kept kept working that way. And um now we've got opening albums or the stuff trying to get mixed and, and decide uh, what makes the album. And uh, we brought out our first single, I think it was three weeks ago, two weeks ago. It's hard to keep track of time. Um, and yeah, it's been really a really nice response. It's just a, a lovely 
creative, collaborative um, friendship that's resulted in music that I think is stuff that we've maybe not had the chance to explore with other projects that we've been involved in. And so there's an, an album's worth uh, hopefully coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you've it on here now, that's, that's it, written down. Um, <laughs> so apart from poster paints and since yesterday, uh, have you been working on anything else? Have you had the chance to? Um, I have been, but then I was like, you know what? Uh, it's it's good to just have a time out and look after yourself because, like, last year my Weirdo album came out and, you know, so, like, a new album came out, finished writing this album aside maybe in January and I've been writing more solo stuff and then I was just like, do you know what? Just focus on one thing for a change. You know, it's not that I don't want to write. Like I have written, I've got over an album source of material and I'm just like, oh, maybe I should record that or maybe I should do that or maybe there's a better song that could replace that one. And then I'm just like, I've still not even played my Weirdo album live yet. You know, I want it to be quite nice to like play that live before you think about doing anything else. And is that the plan eventually to, once we, we're allowed to play live again, is to do a full band album set, that kind of thing? I'd love to. I'd really love to. It's almost, it's so weird releasing music in the time we live in because, yeah, I mean, what, Weirdo, that album's not even a year old and already it feels like that was about two or three years ago it was released. You, it's just nice. It's nice playing, whether that's to 10 people, whether that's to 100 people, whether that's to 500 people. And it's nice talking to people about music after you've performed and meeting people at gigs. And um, it's nice someone buying your record at the merch table and you personally hand it over to them, you know? I think that's that kind of interaction that everyone seems to be missing at some level, definitely. Well, Carla, it's always a pleasure to have a chat with you. Thanks very much for taking the time to do so. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers.